Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the favored podcast of misandrists everywhere. Ooh, ooh. Did I say that right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Just want to make sure my pronunciation is on point. Today we have Kellen and Laura. Yeah. And today we're going to be following up on last week's episode on mass incarceration. So we're going to start by finishing up, letting y'all hear the rest of the conversation Lindsay and I had with our guests. And then the two of us here will finish it up, break it down a little bit more for you guys. So as a refresher, here's who we had on the show last week and who we're going to be hearing more from in just a minute. So we had May who is an organizer with Northwest Community Bail Fund in Seattle and has recently led seminars on the intersection of climate and criminal justice with another one of our guests, Bipolar. Um, We have more info on their work with Fight Toxic Prisons and the Queer Eco-Justice Project in the episode description, so definitely check that out. Bipolar, as I mentioned, also works with the Northwest Community Bail Fund. They are formerly incarcerated and, as we'll hear in a little bit, in the midst of a legal battle over an unjust prosecution. So if you're looking for a concrete way to fight the effects of mass incarceration, Bipolar will let you know how to do that towards the end of our conversation with them. So be sure to listen up. And we've also got information on that in the episode description, so check that out as well. Nellie works with the Detained Migrant Solidarity Committee in El Paso, Texas, but now lives across the border in Mexico after her husband's deportation. Last week, she shared with us what it was like for him and their family while ICE detained him for months. We have a link to the Detained Migrant Solidarity Committee up so y'all can learn more about them and how they help people at risk of deportation. And finally, we have Shayna. She's currently a law student at NYU, and she has spent the last several years fighting for better conditions for incarcerated people, first with the PD Green program, which seeks to expand educational opportunities for incarcerated folks, and more recently with the Orleans Defenders, a public defense law group in Louisiana. And as I am sure you have guessed, we've got info on those groups and more in the episode (laughs) description as well. We're nothing if not thorough. All right. Yeah. With that being said, let's dive right back in. My first question, and I know Bipolar, you mentioned this, and uh, May, you talked about juvenile detention facility. And I'm just wondering about juvenile detention and um, its relationship with mass incarceration and what kind of issues in particular, you know, minor defendants face and minor people who are convicted face. There's multiple levels to this in my book. I want to first start by, since we were just talking about fires, mm-hmm. in Washington, mm-hmm. they send the youth to go fight fires. Oh, um, wow. Uh, they from juvenile, from, I think, I want to say, uh, is there Echo Glenn or a couple others that sit, that will enlist youth specifically to go fight fires? Like 16-year-olds put on a front line of fighting fires and that's I had to get paid uh, a couple dollars a day at best. Um, so I just want to throw that out there before I say anything else because that's like crucial to me, yeah. in my opinion. So as far as like a juvenile specifically, it feels like it's crucial because not only are you traumatizing youth by putting them in a cage. Now in the juvenile we have up here is easily twenty-two hour lockdown on an average day. Uh, unless you're going to school, but that's still like you're locked in the school. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And how many youth really want to be in school in the first place, especially a youth in a ca- uh, school <laughs> in a cage? You know what I mean? So right. like, and that 22 hour lockdown not only is going to traumatize people, but like people know that if you go to juvenile, you're more likely to reoffend, right? So it, mm-hmm. it for me, from my standpoint, as someone that's been there and seen and seen it from that point of view, it feels like it's an investment into the adult system. It's like transitioning those youth and preparing them to go to the adult system. In fact, like there's nothing there's nothing hiding it. When you're in the system, they talk to you about how you're transitioning and ready to go to adult jail, how you're going to be in bit in big boy jail. And they tell you things like that all the time while you're booked. Which sets up not only not only sets you up mentally, but physically prepares you to be incarcerated as an adult. And um for me, juveniles are uh, specifically insidious. 
because it's it's like preying on our youth for your future investments. Because mm. um, I don't I don't think people see that I don't think the people who run these things see it the way the people who buy the propaganda do. I think they have a complete understanding of what they're doing. A oh, pretty good understanding, even if they buy some of the propaganda. They they understand more than they don't. You know. Right. Um, and I really like that what you said about viewing juvenile prisoners as investments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is. I mean, it's a really clarifying way of of describing it and like linking capitalism to this system of incarceration. But um, just like really well said that like a light bulb went off in my head when you said that. So so thank you for that. Yeah. Any anybody else? Like, I, I mean, I think bipolar. You talked really well about how the juvenile system is sort of linked up with the the adult criminal justice system. But I don't know if anybody else has anything they want to add. Yeah, I was just going to mention how a lot of juvenile offenders are charged as adults. And I don't know if it's mm-hmm. if that's an increasing phenomenon, but I imagine it is because like private prisons are much more common now. And of course, like the general prison population is increasing. But yeah, people who commit crimes as children before their brains are fully developed are often charged and punished as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like brain development doesn't you know, finish until you're 25. And so if you're 16 and you commit a crime, like that doesn't indicate any future criminality in and of itself. But once you put a 16 year old into a a prison, that's a pretty good predictor of future criminality because they Mm -hmm. have to revert to some criminal behaviors in order to survive, or they're going to learn from people who have been in the system longer or whose crimes were like, you know, much, much worse. I think sentencing children to jail or anything that looks like jail in the first place makes, I mean, it makes them much more likely to be criminals long-term. And of course, all of that depends on like a definition of criminals and criminality that in and of itself is like incredibly biased and deeply unfair and all of that as well. Yeah. Lots of laws shouldn't be laws. Like lots of, (laughs) lots of crimes shouldn't be crimes. Let's state that right up front. Well, I guess we're at the end at this point. <laughs> yeah, May, did you have something you wanted to add? Thank you for what you added. That was helpful to think about also. But I was just going to say that it's also helpful when we're talking about youth incarceration to expand our scope a little bit and mm-hmm. also talk about how the roots of that are structural um, and that like society is structured to push certain youth into those systems. Um, so a lot of listeners and everyone has probably heard of the school to prison pipeline, but it's important to think about how our school systems are kind of also set up to make black and brown and poor um, and disabled and queer students more likely to be criminalized, mm-hmm. if not by where they are because of racial and economic segregation, then by how they're perceived and policed by their teachers and the staff at their school and the police at their school. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very important point. I agree. I also wanted to say, like, thing of like crime. I mean, crime is like this, this arbitrary, sorry, arbitrary thing uh, that is that is put out there mainly to like make the status quo more uh, tangible, right? And so, like, when we say like people commit crimes, it's like, well, what is crimes? Most mm-hmm. crimes are crimes of like economic uh, sca- scarcity and needing to get resources, mm-hmm. and that's what most people are locked up for. So, yeah. like. Most people wouldn't reoffend if those crimes weren't set up to target them specifically uh, and their uh, attempts at survival, you know? So, so I want to throw that in there, too. Just Absolutely. Oh, yeah, totally. So I am wondering if any of you have encountered or thought of workable art- alternatives to incarceration. What would the world look like without prisons? You know, what's the, what's the next step we should take to get rid of prisons? What does abolition look like? Yeah, exactly. What does abolition look like? I think it really seriously looks like total reinvestment mm-hmm. in in social support services. Right now, the way that we deal with poverty, you know, our ultimate safety net, quote unquote safety net, is a prison. Mm. So I think that if we were to very seriously invest in early childhood education, if we were to very seriously invest in services for homeless people to make it so that crimes of poverty, that poverty isn't criminalized and also significantly diminished poverty levels Mm -hmm. uh, would 
would change. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. I wanted him to like jump in and chime in, but he, he said he's busy with our songs. <laughs> but anyhow, um, I I would have to say that adding on to that. Jacob. <laughs> he wants apple juice. Yes, he wants apple juice. I have seen some things, you know, not because, of course, this idea, but um, the way that uh, other countries, like socialist countries, have, had, have handled crimes and people that commit crimes is more like they become part of this, you know, they're, they're put into a home where they're really, like, free. They're not behind gates they're they're like on a farm with people and instead of them being treated badly they have the freedom to move around and do whatever they want and and they have liberty and it's more they could leave and and even when they were being interviewed and they said yeah we could just walk out of here if we wanted to you know but but they don't want to because they're actually comfortable and and their life is comfortable and they're receiving support to help with any mental issues that they might be having instead of, you know, making it worse. They're actually being treated for it. First of all, let's get rid of all these prisons and then, you know, let's build more more of a family type setting where they can be in an environment where where it's more like a home. Whether it's a group of men, but, you know, they're there. And then within that, they can be trained and learn job skills and learn coping skills and, and learn different things so that they can be an integral part of society and not come out as, as you know, having no clue how to survive. Instead, they it can be reintegrated into society within this process. In some of these documentaries that I've seen where they have humane prison systems that nobody, you know, of course the death penalty is not, it's not really a prison. It's more like a home system. No matter what the crime they, I don't remember the sentence, the highest sentence, but it wasn't much. And it aims more at let's get this person reintegrated. Let's get this person the help they need so that he doesn't feel like an outcast, but he feels like he belongs. And, you know, they have, like I said, it, and, it, and it looks so comfortable and pretty. It's even like, hey, it looks like they're out camping in the cabins, and it's awesome. It's even like, shoot, who wouldn't, who would want to leave there? It's it's nice and peaceful, and they're treated well, and they receive good meals. So um, I think it would take, you know, complete reformation of everything. So right. you're saying like a like more rehabilitation for violent. Yes. Is that kind of where you're going? Okay. Right, right. More rehabilitation. Let's, let's not, you know, it's kind of like, like, let's put this problem in a box and put it away. Mm -hmm. And however it gets treated, you know, that's whatever, you know, it's a human, it's a human, it's it's a human being, it's a life. But instead, they're like, no, let's deal with this person and, and work it healing this person so that they can survive and and it's more community-based it's more like okay we're all in this together so for me prison abolition means there will not be any prison no house arrests no camps where they you know i mean i don't even care if it's like the nice golfy swimming pool prison camp (laughs) none of those uh uh pre-abolition what can like make you the, the 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 different things that could change a society to make it more to make it feasible. Well, it just to me, it's simple. If we take care of, I mean, I'm a communist. I'll be clear about this. But if we take care, I'm an anarcho-communist, so I don't believe in like a hierarchy. But uh, if we take care of our people, so if we make sure people are housed, fed, um, people are are addicted, well, then a free treatment, not incarceration. You know what I mean? Um, and like. Make sure that they that their children are fed, they are fed, they are housed. What is the government for if we're not doing that? That makes no sense for, for them <laughs> to even exist if that's not happening. The free medical care. If those things, the people's needs were covered, crime would plummet and there would be almost none. And the people that we'd have to address would be people that were that have always been a problem specifically and uh they probably be called the government. Um so <laughs> <laughs> it is it's just like we haven't set up to think of a world where there's not where there's not slavery, where there's not incarceration. That's the only reason we don't have all the options. Because the options, they're not like a answer. There's like many answers right. because mm-hmm. each situation is specific. Each community has specific background and specific realities that not everybody else has. You know what I mean? And so each answer is going to come out differently. 
but there's an answer to pretty much everything. And most of the things that exist, as as we know, are like uh, are are again uh, crimes of necessity. And right. if you can't take care of necessity, those disappear immediately. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like people don't have a need to do it, so they're not going to do those things because right. they don't have that need. Those things are ba- based on the needs. You know what I mean? And then uh, so just average options will sort of cry. I mean, yes, there's still like child molestation, rape, and all those things. Those things have to be addressed case by case and spend a lot of time and energy from community, uh, from the communities that are affected and also from communities supporting them to have actual answers and solutions. People can't just like jump, to, like just throw them all in cages because that that's not anything better. We know people are still replicating the trauma. People are still coming out re- reoffending and trauma replicates and it, it's not effective. So even if people think that, okay, what about those people? Well, it's, prison isn't effective. It's counterproductive. So that's not the answer either. And so life isn't easy. Life is never going to be easy. But if we take the time and put the energy in, there's way better answers that not only like save resources, but save lives and communities as well. You know, so. I was thinking about this because a couple years ago, remember that that kid who claimed affluenza? He had been oh, driving his yeah. car and, and like killed people, just like run over people on his way. Um, and he was a wealthy white child. I think I think I believe he was under eighteen. And I remember seeing Anderson Cooper interviewing the psychologist who had recommended he had like been paid by the parents to recommend that this kid like go to this really intensive like therapy program that had like horses and and Anderson Cooper was really upset. He was like, how how could you? not want this kid in prison? Um, you know, why, why shouldn't he go to prison? And I think that that's the wrong question. I think that, I think it sounded like that program was something that was probably going to help that kid. It sounded like that kid had a lot of emotional problems and like, wasn't connecting to human beings in the way that he was supposed to. And the way that his parents responded and the way that the, the courts allowed his parents to respond, and the, the way that they ultimately responded was to to give him this programming that wasn't incarceration. And I think that maybe we need more of that. Um, I think we need to treat people, especially poor people and people of color, like we do the children that our society seems to value more. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, people generally. I think I think if if everybody just thought of people who are committing crimes as their best friends, as their sons, as their sisters and mothers, I think that we wouldn't have the same kinds of responses. I think there would be a lot more mercy, but also rational thinking about what people need and not just what we want them to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are, are very anchored to this system of just like, okay, we put people in prison, we punish mm-hmm. them. Um, right. and, and it's hard to, you know, when I think about the responses that people want for police officers who murder people, you know, they say like this, this person should go to prison forever. And it's like, yeah, I want them to be held accountable as harshly as the harshest way that we should hold people accountable. But you know, maybe that looks like some system of really intense restorative justice. Um, and restorative justice can look like a lot of different things, but sort of at a basic level, it's bringing together the people that are hurt, people who have been victimized, and the person who has created that harm. And having them go through what is not easy, you know, it's not, it's not like a comfortable alternative, but it is an alternative and having them really get into what the what the steps are that they can take to heal that harm. And I think if that were the default, at least, if the default were not, let's just put this person in a cage and forget about them and hope that they're better in a couple years. But if the default were treating human beings as humans and using good psychology and science to, mm-hmm. um, to treat people like people. I think that that would go a long way in changing the system that we have. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a really great way to wrap things up tonight, unless anybody has any final comments. Could I share uh, ask and like information about a case I have? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
So I have uh, these case or cases, actually. One actually went to Supreme Court recently, and I won, but they're wow. retrying me again. And basically, in 2012, I like was cop watching um, as a hara- as the police harassed somebody, which then I started arguing with the police, and then they had a group of people attack me. And this was on camera, but then they arrested me and charged me with a resisting arrest and possession of a, a illegal weapon, illegal weapon, which is like well, it was a knife, but it wasn't really illegal. Um, I lost that trial. I got tasered in court. Uh, mm. Called the judge a fascist. <laughs> and I went to, all the way to Supreme Court. I won the appeal, but now they're going to try me again. They also brought another charge uh, of assault for a Trump rally. It's like a prejudicial type thing. Like, because they've like, they timed it when I won the appeal. They brought up, they recharged me for what I won the appeal on. And then they charged me with this thing, which basically during the uh, Trump, we had a, a youth walkout here when Trump got elected. And I went to that demo and there was somebody who was like threatening young women of color and stuff. Well, like, I, you know, somewhere along there, I accidentally may have bumped into him a little bit with like shoulder to shoulder or something. And they're trying to use that prejudicially as well as uh, as like to add on against me for winning the appeal. As an assault charge. Yeah, as an assault charge, mm-hmm. which uh, really frustrating. Um, it's fourth degree assault. The original case, uh, the original case that it came from was the cop watching case, which not only was the hella racist, but they wouldn't let they made my everybody came to watch it like arms length apart from each other through three of the people who came in to uh show support in jail actually and some more stuff during and that jury yeah. you should say something about the jury uh yeah um well one of the things is they uh dismissed this is one of the reasons i want to appeal they dismissed the one black juror for for having uh a, like immediately without a second guess the only juror and all that it, it was pretty much it was it's all up online at stoplegallynching.wordpress.com. I'll just I won't put it out there because it's really old. We haven't really updated it in a long time, but it has the whole trial up there. But basically what I wanted to put out there was asking people to uh, call Peter Holmes, who's the, like, head of pro- the head of prosecutor in Seattle, and demand that he stops pushing this case forward and ends like prejudicial prosecution against black folks, especially black activists which he's had a pattern of in the city of Seattle. Do you have a phone number? Yeah, and uh, his phone number is 206-684-7757. And if you can mention my case and my name, which my legal name is Matthew Erickson, that'd be dope. If people could call in, it'd help a lot. I'm fighting this case and hoping not to get incarcerated again. And I have, like, a record, so they're trying to, been trying to hit me over the head extra hard for these, like, small misdemeanors for being someone that has a record and is an activist still. Everyone will be able to find that information on our website and attached to uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast as well. So if you didn't catch the phone number, you should be able to see it right now in the description of what you're listening to. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys for letting me put it out there. It means a lot to me. Um, I haven't been like building a lot of it, a momentum to fight this case, and I appreciate y'all letting yeah, me put it out Yeah, of course. There. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We really enjoyed having you on Season of the Bitch. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity as well to share. It's been a pleasure. Yes, likewise. All right. We're back. So I guess I wanted to start this segment by asking you, Laura, um, (laughs) since you weren't on the call with our guests and with Lindsay, um, what you thought about that conversation or like anything that you learned or appreciated or wanted to hear more about? Wow, Kellen, I just love when you just ask me my thoughts on things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing that was so striking to me was how May introduced themselves. And I wanted to thank May for bringing indigenous issues to the forefront. Mm-hmm. I've been meaning to do that for a long time, and I think it, it would be a good thing to continue what they started and bring attention to the fact that I am on occupied Seneca territory right now. Um, the Seneca are part of the Haudenosaunee, or more commonly known by most white people mm-hmm. as the Iroquois Confederation. And I agree with May that many of these issues are rooted in colonialism, like the idea that we can take what we want and do what we want in any way and by any means that we want to. So I was super grateful for that perspective. 
And I was just generally moved by everyone's openness and their personal stories and how they fit into the hellscape that is mass incarceration and anti-immigrant state. I feel a lot of gratitude to all of them. And I just wanted to add really quickly, there was a lot of talk on taking plea deals. It came up a lot, kind of the idea of that pre-trial state. And I just wanted to highlight the tragedy of Khalif Browder, the 22-year-old New Yorker who committed suicide after being held for three years in Rikers Island awaiting trial on charges, which were ultimately dropped, of having stolen a backpack. Browder like ended up having several concussions, which for me is like something that is very related to my mental health issues as well but his concussions were related to his treatment at Rikers Mm -hmm. Um, and his courage is evident in his refusal to accept a plea bargain for something he did not do yet the violence he faced during his imprisonment some of it which is captured on film like particularly of his solitary confinement led him to take his own life after his release. So as we heard from Shayna, Rikers is obviously a really fucked up place, but this isn't necessarily an anomaly. And I just kind of wanted to put like a story to that theme that kind of came up a lot in in the previous episode. Yeah, for sure. And sort of speaking of Shayna's work, I mean, we could have kept these guests on for like another four hours, but um, (laughs) Lindsay and I were recording. It was hard because everybody was on a different Um, in a different time zone. So by the time we were done recording, it was like 11 p.m. on the East Coast. But Shayna's also done some work that, I mean, she talked about Rikers a little bit, but she's been super active in the campaign to close Rikers um, that's been Mm. going on in New York City for years now. So I think Khalif Browder's story is unfortunately a really poignant example of the way that that prison, but so many, probably really like all American prisons, are just inherently corrupt and deeply dehumanizing places. Um, So yeah, Laura, thank you so much for for bringing that up. Totally. (laughs) Happy to bring really fucked up shit to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, (sighs) I think another thing that came up that you may have wanted to talk about that we spent some time on and um, Bipolar brought up some some history that I wasn't aware of um, and I know you've got some history to pull out uh, too is that the, the idea of prison privatization and how we got there and so if you wanted to talk about that real quick I know you've got a lot to say yeah let's let's get into it so I want to start by saying my dear friend Kristen Doty who's a PhD student in American studies and was also our guest on the transformative justice episode she's done a ton of research on mass incarceration and particularly the relationship between corporatization and mass incarceration and she sent me a lot of her research and a lot of her writing on this and yeah I'm just gonna swap roles with Kellen real quick and talk about the history of prison privatization um Woo-hoo! which at <laughs> Not cheering for prison privatization, cheering for history, just to make that clear. Yes. And as our guest so incredibly touched on, this doesn't just mean the private prisons themselves, but the privatization of the entire prison system, even if it's a public prison. So the birth of the prison privatization surge, as it is typically discussed today, begins in the early 1980s with the conception of the Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, and GEO Group. These remain the two largest private correction corporations in the United States. However, Kristen notes that the history of American prisons contracting with private corporations spans back to just after the Civil War. Uh, She quotes Sharon Dolovich's State Punishment in Private Prisons, and she writes, Indeed, the history of 19th century American prisons is a history of contracting between the state and private interests for the use of convict labor in efforts of both sides to achieve financial gain. The most common form of this is the business of convict leasing. Mm -hmm. So states would, quote unquote, lease prisoners in their ward out to private corporations who would in turn feed, house, and clothe these convicts in exchange for free forced labor, a.k.a. slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, And here I'm pulling directly from Kristen's research. 
The system lined the coffers of the state as they were paid for bodies and no longer had to worry about the overhead cost of basic care. It also financially benefited the corporations who retained the bodies of those freshly emancipated, receiving free labor with small deductions for the bare bones required for living necessities. Perhaps even more insidiously, the convict leasing system created incentives for redefining criminality, mm. paving the way for racist legislation, um, essentially intending to criminalize black life. The combination of trumped up legal charges and forced labor as punishment created desirable business propositions. Throughout the early 20th century into the 1920s, convict leasing became increasingly unpopular and viewed unfavorably by many American citizens, irrespective of race. Many southern states where this type of leasing was the most prevalent slowly stopped using convict leasing as a form of revenue. However, it is perhaps not until the 1940s when Harry Truman's Committee on Civil Rights reworked federal criminal codes and plainly stated the illegality of this mutated form of slavery. Um, of course, this obviously became a lot more messed up. Like the 1940s is like we solved this issue um, through the Nixon and Reagan administrations trying to mask racist policies under just say no campaigns and law and order campaigns like any sort of anti-drug movement in the 20th century is a masked way to incarcerate black communities. Mm -hmm. um, and this is really important to understand in terms of how much federal funding goes into these capitalist endeavors of continuing to lock up citizens and, as Nellie really spoke to, undocumented folks within the United States. Yeah. So I to I just I wanted to like build on that because that was like an incredible summary. Um, so thank you for that, Laura. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the convict leasing system and women prisoners and then kind of elaborate a little bit on why the convict leasing system was phased out, because I think it's a really great example of capitalism at work and the way that capitalism just doing its thing can be sort of painted as like, you know, gains in like an anti-racist sense when in fact, as is frequently the case, we're just finding more effective and profitable ways to exploit people. So totally. with that being said, a couple of books that people might be interested in, I'm going to reference here. Um, the first one is No Mercy Here by Sarah Haley. I believe her first name is Sarah. Yeah. Um, no Mercy Here, Gender Punishment and the Making of Jim Crow Modernity. And so Haley's argument is that in the aftermath of Reconstruction, in the aftermath of the Civil War, when black people aren't slaves anymore, there's this sort of scramble to figure out new boundaries of racialization outside the context of white equals free, black equals slave. Because that's, it wasn't obviously always true, but um, having that rule made structuring relationships between white and black people much easier, especially in the South. So in the aftermath, there's sort of this questioning that's going on, especially among white people who are sort of like, well, how do we reestablish a racial hierarchy now that slavery is extinct? And several episodes ago, I think I've actually brought up this book a couple of times, I talked about Kathy Brown's book, Good Wives, Nasty Wenches, Anxious Patriarchs, which is just like I still the best title, I think, in all book history. And yes. um, her argument was basically like, when settlers came to America, you know, took over indigenous lands and were importing labor, they invented race and one of, you know, like invented the concept of race or took a very nascent idea of, of race and turned it into a tool to justify slavery. And one of the ways that we know that they did that is because of how they treated white women and black women differently, um, how gender is a tool in making race because gender is an established hierarchy that was used to sort of create another hierarchy. So Kathy Brown's question is, what is the role that is assigned that white people attempt to assign to black people to create slavery. It's sort of like this, this how, how do we format this system, this relationship between the elites and the laborers? And then that system is destroyed. And Sarah Haley's question is, again, how, how do we reformat this system? And so her argument is, and this is something that Laura brought up, that basically 
racialized standards of gender are remodeled and then reinforced in the Southern Jim Crow penal system. So one of the ways that the racial hierarchy is reestablished in the aftermath of slavery is that white people, like poor white people, especially poor white women, are criminalized very differently than poor black women. And especially in the context of the actual physical spaces of the prisons, Black women are forced to engage in physical labor in a way that white women who are in prison are virtually never required to do. So Mm. you see black women being put on chain gangs just as men were. White men, black men were on chain gangs, but only black women, for the most part, were put on chain gangs. And so this is another way of sort of recoding the idea of female punishment as being just how do we punish white females coding the feminine in general, recoding that as white again, and then coding black women as masculine or essentially men. And obviously we can look at the way that black women were sexually exploited and know that it's not that simple, but this was like a really important development basically in reestablishing the racial hierarchies in the aftermath of civil war. Anyway, so Laura was talking about the convict leasing system and how it sort of fell apart in the early to mid 20th century. And one of the reasons that it happened was because the state, so there's sort of an evolution of prison labor. It starts with chain gangs and chain gangs are um, essentially prisoners who are coerced to work specifically for the state. So they're, you know, building roads, they're digging ditches. They're not doing work for private companies, they're doing work for public spaces. So Mm. chain gangs are sort of like step one, especially in the South, of like re-enlisting especially black labor to do free sort of unpaid work. So chain gangs sort of fall out of favor as states realize that they can actually make more money by leasing convicts, it's convict leasing, sort of selling especially black labor to companies. And the reason that this sort of starts to fall apart is that at the same time that this is all happening, sort of the, the 1910s through the 1930s, again, as Laura pointed out, you have increasing numbers of white people in the South who are going bankrupt. They're frequently sharecroppers. They are losing their land. You have outbreaks of like bull weevils that are destroying crops. Automization is becoming more and more prevalent. So people are, you just don't need as much manpower to do the work. All of these things are happening. And so white Southern men are starting to look for work. And their complaint is essentially like, we can't find jobs if companies are just buying black people from prisons. And so Mm -hmm. there begins to be this sort of Southern white revolt against the use of this form of carceral labor. And so one of the the outcomes of this is the end of the convict leasing agreements as we know them in the early 20th century. But you start to see black women especially form what Haley calls a domestic carceral sphere, wherein black women, instead of being leased out to companies in this same way, are starting to be forced to work as domestics instead, as a condition Mm. of their parole. So black women are, even after leaving prison, they actually sometimes are not held in prison for as long, but their labor is still controlled afterwards as a condition of parole, and they're forced to work in white families or for white companies doing domestic cleaning work, that sort of thing. So you have this transition and there is like, like Laura said, and, and some people who are especially conscious of racial tensions or whatever, liked to sort of paint it as progress, but there's just other ways of controlling labor that they just almost exclusively like moved straight into. So yeah, that's uh, totally, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's real dark. It's always real dark. Yeah. So, but I mean, I should, I should also sort of say that like, even, even as the convict labor system fell out of favor, um, and this is now I'm, I'm drawing on another book and, uh, that's called Worse Than Slavery, Parchment Farm and the Ordeal of Jim Crow Justice by David Oshinsky. And Parchment Farm is, um, a particularly notorious prison in, um, Mississippi 
uh, where actually a number of people who are involved in the civil rights movement, like the um, some of the darkest, most violent periods of the civil rights movement in Mississippi, like the some of the freedom writers who were arrested, for example, were sent to Parchman. Oshinsky writes about this farm as sort of an example in the same way that we think about Rikers as being like an example today. While you have this sort of falling out of favor of the convict lease system, you have these other places like Parchman that are being developed where people are doing massive amounts of time. You see the beginning of sort of mandatory minimums under another name in this context. So you basically have a system in which Mississippi is sending poor black people, especially, or black people, or some whites as well, who are um, threatening the racial hierarchy there in the waning days of Jim Crow. They're sent there to do labor within the context of the farm. So instead of convict leasing, which is driving down white wages and that sort of thing, you have them actually working within the context of like an enclosed space. And the governor who is responsible for the creation of this this place of Parchman Farm, which is really a penitentiary, is a guy named James Vardaman, who's like the worst kind of Mississippi that exists. And he literally described it as functioning like an efficient slave plantation. Right. A lot of people were just like very open about the fact that they just were continuing these slave practices. Yeah. And he also said that like part of the idea was that it would teach troublemaking black people, quote, respect for white authority. What the fuck? So anyway, like Stokely Carmichael and James Farmer were there. Just some names that y'all might be familiar with. And this continued until 1972. Um, when the Supreme Court was finally like, this is like literally abusive. And again, we mm, know mm. from the discussions that we've we've had that y'all have heard that like forms of slavery of coerced unpaid labor are still happening. But the parchment farm was just, you know, a bridge too far. It was too obviously a remnant of the plantation system that existed literally 100 years, more than 100 years after the end of the Civil War. Totally. Yeah, I really went off on my bullshit there. No, um, it's great. I love it when just... you go off on your bullshit. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, uh, yeah. I wanted to kind of address how these corporations have so much influence and particularly talk about it in the in the political system. Mm-hmm. So for those of you that have been with us for a while, y'all may recall that we talked a lot about lobbying on our Palestinian episode. Um, with how powerful the Zionist lobbies are within the United States. And there are extremely powerful incarceration lobbies as well, particularly when it comes to corporate exploitation of slave labor within the prison system. Again, a lot of this is coming from the incredible research by Kristen Doty. Um, Just just want to honor that. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to be talking about a lot about this thing called ALEC. So founded in 1973, The American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, is an organization that brings together state legislators and corporate lobbyists. According to their website, ALEC is a forum for stakeholders to exchange ideas and develop real state-based solutions to encourage growth, preserve economic security, and protect hardworking taxpayers. Oof. Um, Which is just like kind of like ridiculous. But they claim to be nonpartisan and portray their intents as ensuring economic prosperity for American communities. Spoiler alert, that's not the fucking reality. So the way that ALEC works and its nature as being a quote-unquote nonprofit organization are what distinguish it from normal lobbying groups and what makes it far more fucked up for the American public, particularly as it has remained in the shadows for the majority of its near half century in existence. People only started really becoming aware of ALEC in the last five years or so. So... First of all, ALEC receives the majority of its funding from its hundreds of corporate partners. And a lot of these are big name brand shit that y'all know about. The thousands of state legislators that are members of ALEC pay a small yearly fee. ALEC also receives funding from venture th- philanthropists such it's such as a the Coke. Joke. Sorry to right. interrupt, but venture no, it's philanthropists? A, like, right. It doesn't make any sense. It's just like a <gasps> weird. It's like how they bipolar and May were talking about the word Superfund, which is just like a really yeah. messed up way to talk about like environmental disaster zone. So venture philanthropists is like another way of being like, oh, the Koch family. <laughs> <laughs> so 
people like the Koch Family Foundation and select trade associations and professional organizations such as the NRA or Tobacco Institute who make up quote unquote task force members. These corporate partners, state legislators, and task force members meet in closed doors to discuss, invent, and approve what is known as, quote, model legislation. Um, So this is often how lobbying groups work. The state legislators take these model bills, sometimes verbatim, sometimes it's slightly revised, and they introduce them to particular state legislatures. The bills almost exclusively will then in some way benefit a corporate partner of ALEC. And this process forms a circular process that opens up new private markets and diminishes government power. So that's just like the first half of that. Secondly, and perhaps what distinguishes ALEC most from their other lobbying groups is the fact that they are declared nonprofit. More honestly, they are a lobby wearing the mask of a nonprofit. Because of this, they do not have to abide by the same structure and laws that lobbies do. Not only does ALEC not have to pay taxes, their corporate members get a tax write-off for being a member. More importantly is that thousands of state legislatures can be wined and dined. So there are strict laws that prohibit lobby groups from giving any type of money to legislatures, even an act as small as buying legislatures a cup of coffee. But because ALEC is a nonprofit, it can foot the bill for lavish gifts, nights out on the town, and meet with legislative members in close quarters to discuss an array of model bills. The effect ALEC has had on the increase of incarceration in America and the promotion of private correction interests is probably unknowable. But the policy ALEC has influenced that affect corrections and detention does not end with increase in mandatory minimums, which they've introduced, or three-striked laws, which they've also introduced, but also include immigration policies and even the restriction on voters' rights. So a lot of stuff we kind of started learning during the George W. Bush election in Florida in particular, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those bills in Florida came out of ALEC. (laughs) (laughs) really special so as usual with late stage capitalism we see this problematic bullshit mutate to something that seems less messed up to the american public Mm -hmm. but in reality is it is still as bad as it ever was and it is actually usually worse than you think it is so instead of seeing an increase in private prisons like as i believe shana mentioned it's about seven percent of the carceral state is privatized That has garnered a lot of criticism, but we do see an increase in the privatization of other carceral pieces, most notably private bail corporations, private probation companies, and private immigration detention facilities. Mm, It's also important to note that whether it be the private food corporations, privatized health services, private phone companies, or businesses operating inside the prisons and paying those incarcerated pittances for the work completed, aka nothing, Privacy does not start nor end with the main conceived structures of the prison. I mean, like, I feel like I could go on and on about this, but like, I know we run it out of time, so I'm a hold back. <laughs> yeah, no, that was um, I think that's like that's great, great background. And, and what you were saying, too, about the way that that sort of every structure within prison exploits the people who are within it you know not just the way that labor is extracted but everything else too reminds me a lot of what Nellie was saying about when her husband was in ice detainment and the way that Mm. he was treated and just like the the constant struggle within that space as well and and how we can trace a lot of that back to attempts to profit not just off the labor but off every experience that somebody has in prison totally And I know that each of our guests kind of spoke about their thoughts on the end of the carceral state, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, which is like the most exciting part of of this whole thing. And on specifically on rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of this is because Ambria, who couldn't be with us, wanted to touch on this. And so I kind of wanted to focus on thinking about the end of the carceral state through the lens of rehabilitation. And I think it's often hard for folks to think about what policing and other issues of the carceral state would look like if it wasn't it 
if it wasn't how it is now. And here I really want to draw from Michael Moore's Where to Invade Next, which in my opinion is his best work. And the whole premise of the film is that America's military and political leaders have lost their way and have called Moore into help. So essentially by quote unquote invading various countries in Europe and North Africa, he hopes to discover social and political ideas that he can bring home to the U.S. Wait, sorry, I haven't seen this movie. Just to clarify, is he, I don't even know what to ask, sorry. What are you, so what like are, the whole thing, he's like joking. He's joking that he's invading these places. And he kind of comes off with this premise like it, the whole thing starts and he's like wearing an American flag on his body. And he says like the it's clear that the U.S. politicians and military leaders are needing some help and like. I feel really called to help them. And he's kind of doing it in this satirical way. But um, he goes to these these nations throughout Europe and North Africa and jokes about taking like he'll plant an American flag with their good ideas. And a lot of it has to do with labor laws. Um, but what I wanted to focus on was specifically incarceration and policing in these different places. Okay. That makes total sense now that it's been explained. I was like trying to ask like what – there's a like a white lib guy that's gonna go like in- invade countries and like take right. their ideas. I got it now. Please continue. Right. Yes, like I I'm I understand the the problematic nature of Michael Moore, but <laughs> bear with me. This this documentary is extremely informative and kind of amazing. So, uh, and it honestly it focuses a lot on labor issues. So Ooh. I think it's his best like leftist work. Um, nice. Yeah, so the incarceration and policing are a huge point in this film, and I I wanted to just bring up a few really striking policies slash ways of having police that are potential steps in the right direction. The first is that in Portugal, all drug use is decriminalized. Unless someone is holding a massive amount of drugs on their person, I think it's something like 10 days worth of drugs like on their body. All drugs... Not just soft drugs, so from marijuana to heroin, um, is completely decriminalized. The Portuguese focus on health rehabilitation for those struggling with addiction and have made help really accessible to those who are really struggling with issues of addiction and drug abuse. That's awesome. Um, when anyone is is kind of, I don't even want to say caught with drugs, but if... Um, if something happens, even with with that large amount of drugs, they go before a panel, which includes mental health specialists and addiction specialists, rather than people within the carceral system. Mm-hmm. So part of this is just something that keeps people out of the criminal justice system. Yeah. We know that in the United States, people across races use drugs equally, and yet we also know the rate of incarceration for drug offenses is significantly higher for people of color. So again, not a full-fledged solution, but for me, it's like obviously a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. The second thing that was really notable in that film is that not every country allows police officers to carry guns. Again, this doesn't solve everything completely, as we've seen in cases like Eric Garner's, mm-hmm. but it definitely would decrease the amount of fatal interactions with police that are a major fear of black communities across the United States. And in the film, you see police officers like the one thing we want U.S. police officers to do is stop carrying guns. So in Norway, Ireland, the U.K., Iceland and New Zealand, cops aren't allowed to carry guns on their person. Sometimes they do have access to a weapon like that um, within a safe where ammo is stored separately. But what that does is stops them from making brash decisions um again this doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to create damage on a citizen but it decreases a lot of the violence that we've come to expect in the united states i know a lot of leftists are fine with guns so this may not be a popular opinion but i just don't think guns are okay and it doesn't fucking matter that you can't participate in your sports or whatever because it saves real fucking lives and i just want to have a like minor tangent here that I just want anyone who got a little upset at me for talking about guns to take a minute to look up how many fatal domestic violent cases there are per year, the majority of which are caused by gun violence. Gun violence is a gendered issue. It is a race issue. And IMO, it's worth the thousands of lives saved to infringe on your rights or whatever. And I'm just not sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) I will say I have so much respect and like appreciation for the tradition of armed self-defense than black communities in the United States, particularly in the context of like racial violence and the time periods we were talking about or like the Black Panthers policing the police. Um, Yes. 
So obviously a nuanced issue, but at the same time, like it's undeniable that that women and actually like like Laura was sort of suggesting women of color and uh, transgender women are really at risk for being on the receiving end of gun violence. So Ooh, yeah, yes. de-arm the police. Yes. Um, and yeah, obviously Black Panthers and like stuff that Angela Davis has spoken to a lot is not really what I'm speaking no, to. Yeah. It's more like often our white male comrades who are like hunting is a tradition within leftist. Anyway, I just I'm not about it. Um, <laughs> get a get a crossbow. That's cool. OK, so. <laughs> the third thing and most impactful example that we see in Moore's film is this prison in Norway. So in this prison called the Bastoy prison, it's an island. The prisoners, some of whom are murderers and rapists, live in conditions that critics brand cushy and luxurious. Yet it has by far the lowest reoffending rate in Europe. So when bipolar and others were talking earlier about recidivism rates in the U.S., a.k.a. the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend, we know that the rates of returning to prison and staying in that system are extremely high. But in this place, reoffending rates have been reported at 16% compared to a European average of around 70%. And in the United States, that number is even higher. So I want to paint a quick picture of this prison. It's on an island in Norway, and it is meant for the highest offenders in Norway. A couple of things you want to know uh, first is that the only life sentencing in Norway is under military law. The maximum sentencing for a regular citizen, even for murdering several children at a summer camp, this is a real example in the documentary, mm-hmm. is 21 years. However, most serve 14, and if you're a repeat offender, it's actually less time. I think for third offenders, the maximum is something like seven years. The inmates are allowed to specialize in various trades and skills, and when Michael Moore visited, he spoke to an inmate charged with a violent crime who was preparing a decadent meal with extremely sharp knives, and the inmates are trusted to become better people. One of the inmates noted It's like living in a village, a community. Everybody has to work, but we have free time so we can do some fishing or in the summer we can swim off the beach. We know we are prisoners, but here we feel like people. So it's just a totally different way of thinking about justice. Additionally, it takes three years training to become staff at these prisons. Oh, wow. Rather than the average of five weeks in the U.S. and the U.K., So, I mean, I'd obviously rather see the entire criminal justice system completely be destroyed. But for a starting place, getting the capitalism out of the system, a.k.a. actually trying to rehabilitate humans rather than profiting off their imprisonment is a huge start. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously that those places are are doing a lot better than we are. Um, But. I think as you sort of alluded to, obviously, like we still want more than like what Norway is offering, you know? So like definitely not Hell yeah, we do. to anybody that we're like, yeah, I mean, Norway, like doing <laughs> everything perfect. But um, it yeah. is a, an example of a, a system that is not intended, that is intended for rehabilitation rather than for profit, at least you know, it's oriented towards rehabilitation more than profit, innumerable times more than ours is. So s- steps, at least, in the right direction. Um, but yeah, uh, prison abolition, I think, is the ultimate goal. Fuck yeah. So, anyway, All right. we have crammed <laughs> a lot of information into a short period of time. I'm Hell yeah. about it. We did it. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you all for tuning in, listening to us, and listening, of course, to our wonderful guests. Thanks again to everybody that came on and talked to us. It was an incredible privilege to just be part of that conversation. So, um, as always, you can check us out on Twitter at Season of the Bee. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. You can find merch on our website at Season of the Bee dot com slash merch uh we're on soundcloud we're on itunes we're everywhere places you don't want us to be we're probably there there's no hiding um you can't hide can't. you can't hide from season of the bitch i don't know we why everywhere. you want to, we out there 
you can't do it. So, yeah. If you really like what we do, please support us on Patreon. That's kind of how we can continue to bring you this content. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'd love you to support us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. And finally, go look at the stuff in the bio. Like, yes. give that prosecutor a call at the very least. Like, yes. seriously, y'all, this is not a joke. Do that before you give to us on Patreon. But, like, hell yeah, do both. So, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. It sure does. Lindsay so great chatting with you, Callan. <laughs> Lindsay and I forgot to tell each other that we loved each other last week. So, I love you, Lindsay. <laughs> I love you too, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Laura. And I love you, Kellen. Bye. Bye. Love you so much. Bye. (laughs) Season of the Bitch.